We're beginning a new series today that will take us up to the uh, Advent time, and we're going to be doing what is really the bread and butter of, uh, of my type of ministry and the bread and butter, uh, butter of this church, and that is doing a serial expository series. That is to say, walk through a book of the Bible, explaining it as we go. And we will be looking at the letter of Paul to the Galatians. We'll be looking at the first ten verses. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, Let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I sometimes use an expression, but I'm not sure if it's still current. And sometimes I'm not sure if people understand what I'm saying. I missed kind of 30 years of the development of uh, popular expressions in the United States. But this one is uh, probably fairly old. But sometimes I refer to someone leading with his chin. Leading with his chin. Now, I don't know if that's a current expression. I don't hear others using it. Uh, so I don't know if it's very understandable anymore, but it's, a, a, it's a, an expression that comes from boxing. And the idea is that somebody is leading recklessly with the most vulnerable part of his or her body. That's the idea of leading with your chin. Well, um, I don't know if that's a common expression. You can tell me later whether it is or not, and I can try to, uh, I can try to alter my expressions and get a little more up to date. Um, but um, in, in some of Paul's letters we don't really get the idea of what occasioned the letter until fairly far into it. For example, Philippians, it's four chapters, and we don't realize that it's a thank you letter until chapter 4. The occasion was that he had received a gift from the Philippian church, and he was writing a thank you letter, but it wasn't until chapter 4 when he got around to thanking them for the gift. Then in Romans, 16 chapters, we don't find out that until chapter 15 that he's, he's wanting help to get to Spain and he finally gets around to mentioning it in chapter 15. But in Galatians, Paul leads with his chin. Paul jumps in recklessly and even rudely in this letter he wrote to the Galatians. And he begins with the greeting. And we find that this greeting is very unusual for Paul. 
And we find here that he's already entering into a sort of combative attitude, even in the greeting. Now, a typical greeting, a letter in Paul's days, went like this. And you see this through Paul's letters. Sender to receiver greetings. So there were three elements. The sender identifies himself or herself. Uh, identifies then those who are to receive the letter, and then gives a short greeting. There was a Jewish form of that, there was a Roman form of that, but that was very simply how it was done. And Paul used this in all of his letters. But he modified this greeting in accordance with the needs of the church. For example, to the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica, these were the churches with which he had an excellent relationship. These were the churches that contributed the most financially to Paul. And so in those letters, he didn't identify himself as an apostle. He didn't have to pound the table and talk about his authority. They knew who he was. They loved him. They supported his ministry. And he simply identified himself as a servant. But usually he identifies himself as an apostle. And here he does. But he begins pounding the table from the very get-go. Paul, an apostle. And then he says, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father. Here, immediately, he begins defending his apostleship, which gives us the idea, as we will see throughout this letter, that his apostleship in the Galatian region was under attack. So he he had the need to, to begin to say, I'm an apostle, I'm a sent one, and I'm not sent from humans. The origin of my apostleship is not human, and uh, the agency of my apostleship. So he says, not from Men, nor through man. So the source of my apostleship is divine, and the, the agency of my apostleship is divine. And if you have read any of the book of Acts, you know how his calling came, don't you? He was on the way to Damascus from Jerusalem. We will find out in the next section why he was on the way to Damascus. We'll leave that for him to explain in the next section of Galatians. But he was on the way to Damascus, and he was struck down by a bright light and uh, a voice out of heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the answer was, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And so there, there was no human agency. This came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul received his calling. And some in Galatia were questioning this. Some in Galatia were saying, well, Paul, you know, we know about the original apostles, the ones who walked with Jesus for three years, but you're sort of questionable. We're not so sure about, about your authority. It, it seems a little suspicious. It seems kind of human-oriented. Well, he didn't name anyone in particular, but he added something here in verse 2. So he says, I'm an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then he added in verse 2, And all the brothers who are with me. All the brothers who are with me. Sometimes he mentions some of those. Here he doesn't mention any. But this may also be in order to give weight to what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not uh, an individual agent. I'm not, I'm not giving you something that is simply my own opinion. I am not only called by Jesus Christ, but in addition to that, I have the backing of the church behind me. All of the church is with me in what I'm going to say to you. I want you to notice another thing about verse 1. And this is very typical of the New Testament. It says that his call as an apostle came through Jesus Christ 
and God the Father. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And you see this all through the New Testament. That the writers, without seeming to be doing anything extraordinary in their own minds, put Jesus and God the Father on the same level. They do it with such naturalness that it is, it's obvious that this was the common doctrine of the church. There are those who don't believe this, that Jesus is God, but uh, it, it's, it's clear that this is the perspective of the New Testament. And oftentimes, uh, those who don't believe this and try to modify the Scripture, they take out a verse here or take out a verse there, retranslate it, but it is shot through with this idea. We find all the time Jesus and God the Father being put on the same level. Now, this letter... The second part. So we have the sender, Paul the Apostle, right? Then we have the, 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 the recipients of the letter. That's at the end of verse 2. To the churches of Galatia. Different from other letters, this was not written to a city. It was written to a region. The region of Galatia, which is Central Asia Minor. It, it was a province of, um, a Roman province in Central Asia Minor. Now there's an interesting side story about uh, Galatia. Uh, where this name came from. When you think of the, the Celtic people, what countries do you think of? Ireland, Scotland, and that's where many of them went, but others went down into France, and others went to Central Asia. And so we have Gaelic, and then we have France, which was called Gaul, and then we have Galatia. So these people were very much spread out, but they were related. These were Celtic people that were in Asia Minor. But there is an ongoing debate about where he meant, because there was a North Galatia and there was a Southern Galatia. And um, there are scholars that defend both of these positions, and uh, it's not particularly germane to us, but it does affect the dating of the letter, and it does affect the, uh, the identity of the opponents whom Paul is going to be dealing with here. Um, I don't think we need to settle the debate, and I don't think we're going to settle the debate, because uh, uh, great scholars land on each side. But uh, I tend to think that this was an early letter of Paul, that this is one of the earliest ones, and the situation, as we will find, is that people came in after he was there in Galatia and were teaching another message. Now, the third element of the greeting is the, the greeting itself, the grace to you and peace. This is in verse 3. Grace to you and peace, once again, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, just putting them on the same level. Um, he extended this, this section considerably. Uh, when Jews would greet each other, they would use the greeting, Shalom. When Greeks would greet each other, they would say something like, Greetings. Romans would say, Greetings. And Paul takes these two and he puts them together. Uh, the words that the Romans would use was karain, and instead of karain, he uses charis, which is grace. So he Christianizes the Roman greeting, and then he Christianizes the uh, he, he, he Christianizes the Jewish greeting. He puts grace, the primary blessing of the New Testament, and shalom, the primary blessing of the Old Testament. He puts this together in this this adapted greeting, which he uses quite frequently. So grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins in verse 4 to expand this. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this might sound like sort of typical, uh, typical content for Paul, but not in a greeting. 
We see here Paul is is already banging the table and saying this is what Jesus did. What did he do? He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So we're not even out of the greeting yet. And we have significant content here, don't we? we? We have the teaching that Jesus is on par with God the Father. So Jesus is divine. And we also have that Jesus gave himself for our sins. And we also have, in verse 1, that God the Father raised him from the dead. Now this letter is going to be all about the gospel. But in the greeting, what do we have? We have the basic elements of the gospel spelled out already. Paul is leading with his chin. He's leading with the gospel even in the greeting. What is the gospel? That Jesus, the man Jesus, is God. He gave himself for our sins and God raised him from the dead. That is the gospel message. And he explains here not only the what, but he explains the why. In verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. And by the way, this expression, he gave himself for our sins, is somewhat ambiguous. But we will see as we read through the rest of the letter, what it means is, he gave himself in our place. He gave himself as our substitute. He gave himself as the payment for our sins. That's what it means that he gave himself for our sins. And then it tells us why he did that. He did that to rescue us from the present evil age. What is the present evil age? The word for age in Greek is, is, is where we get our, our word eon. So the present evil eon. The present evil epoch. And to understand what's happening here, we need to understand a little bit about how Jews viewed all of time. They viewed it in two eons, in two epochs, in two ages. There is this present evil age, then there is the coming of the Messiah, and then there is the age to come. So two ages, two ages. And that's what we find in the New Testament as well, but we find something surprising. This is something of a surprise in the New Testament, and that is that these ages overlap. These ages overlap. Why? Because Messiah comes once, He inaugurates the age to come, and puts a nail in the coffin of the present evil age, and He will come again to consummate uh, the age to come and to completely do away with the present evil age. Is that clear? So it's taking this, this, these two ages and it's slipping one on top of another. But what's the idea here? This is where the, the rubber meets the road for us. In what age do we live? In what age do we live? Well... Both. And this is, the, this is the, the tension of the Christian life. This is the, the tension that we experience every single day if we are Christians. So this is not just, just arcane theology. This is Christian living here. And he says he did this to deliver us from the present evil age. What's he saying here? He's saying, even though... Even though the age to come has not come in completely, it has broken in. And we are able to live as citizens of the age to come, even though, chronologically speaking, we are still laboring in this eon, this epoch that is the present evil age. We have some other verses that speak like this. 
and actually flesh out what that might mean. Uh, Romans chapter 12, it's on page 1049, 1049 of the Bibles that are available to you. Romans chapter 12. Uh, Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And here we go. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, to this eon, to this epoch, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the idea is, though, even though we walk in the the remnants of this, this present evil age, we can walk as people whose minds are renewed and who think not according to this present evil age, but according to the age to come. And what does that mean? Having our minds renewed so that we might discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. To, to, to say it as plainly as possible, that we can live according to the will of God now, even when we're in this overlap of the ages and we experience the tension of living therein. So what does this mean? It means a transformation of our values. It means that even though we walk and live next to other people, uh, who, who don't hold our, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that our, our values are different from the, theirs. We have been drawn out. We have been rescued. We have been delivered so that our lifestyles are, are starkly different from their lifestyles. So that people can look at us and say, you seem like you're of another planet. You seem like you're of a, another world. And we could say, indeed we are of another world, because we have been delivered out of this present evil age, and we have been introduced into the age to come. Now, in all of Paul's letters to the churches, in all of the other ones, after the greeting, he thanked God for the church, or he blessed the church in some way. It is remarkable that this is the only letter in which he didn't do that. He blessed God and simply said, To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And if we'd lay out all the letters, we would say, Paul, why are you omitting this thanksgiving for the church? He gave thanks even for the Corinthian church. As much as a mess as it was, he gave thanks for the Corinthian church, but he doesn't give thanks for the Galatian church. Why not? Well, this this is preparing us for what comes But I think it doesn't even prepare us for the harshness of what Paul is going to say in the following verses. In verse 6 and following, instead of thanking God for the church, he expresses his absolute astonishment that the church was abandoning God so soon and turning to another gospel. Imagine if you receive... A letter. Dear so-and-so, I'm writing to you to say, what's wrong with you? What happened to you? I can't believe what's going on in your life. That's the tone of this. Very harsh from the beginning. Very strong. But Paul was really alarmed because they were in danger of throwing away absolutely everything. 
You see, in the case of the Corinthians, they had theological problems, they had divisions, they had immorality, they had lawsuits, they had drunkenness, they had all sorts of scandalous things, but those things could have been fixed if they would keep going in the Gospel. But here they were in danger of giving up the Gospel itself. So whatever problems they might have had would not be able to be fixed. And so Paul gets right to the heart of the matter that they were abandoning the Gospel. And he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Verse 6. But then he quickly clarifies so that we don't misunderstand. He says, not that there is another one. It's not that there is another Gospel, but there is a counterfeit Gospel. He says, there are some who are disturbing you, troubling you, and they want to distort the Gospel of Christ. So it's not that this is a real gospel. It's actually the opposite of a gospel. It's an anti-gospel. Why is it an anti-gospel? Well, because it's not the true one, as we'll see. But as we find out what it is over these next weeks, we find that it is the opposite of good news. It is bad news. You see, gospel means good news. And we will find that the message that these interlopers were preaching was not good news. In fact, we will find it's terrible news as we go along in this letter. So he says, there's no other gospel. There's no other good news. This is the only gospel that there is. And what he did then might be kind of shocking to us, but he pronounced a curse. He pronounced it twice. Just to make sure we we got it. That it wasn't sort of a slip here in verse 8, then he repeated it in verse 9. He says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said, as we have said before, in the previous verse, he just said it, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Notice how he pronounced this. He said, even though he said that our apostleship is from the Lord Jesus Christ directly, my apostleship is from the Lord Jesus Christ directly, but even if I, who have been called as an apostle directly from Jesus Christ, preach another gospel, may I be accursed. Then he says, even if an angel... Now this is hypothetical, because a holy angel wouldn't do this, but he's, he's, he's emphasizing that there is only one gospel by saying, even if a holy angel were to show up and preach a gospel other than the one you received, let that angel be accursed. And then he extends it and says, if anyone, if anyone, whoever that person might be, preaches another gospel, let that person be accursed. The emphasis here is that the gospel comes from Christ. It's the gospel of the grace of Christ, verse 6. In verse uh, 7, it's the gospel of Christ. So he's no longer talking about any sort of personal authority. He's saying, my apostleship comes from Christ, and the gospel I preached comes from Christ. He is the authority. He is the source of the gospel. Now, this kind of language is very hard for us to hear, perhaps especially these days, because we live in a pluralistic society, and we can 
be thankful that we live in a pluralistic society that allows freedom of religion. But sometimes pluralism is, uh, is presented in something of an oppressive way that is no longer pluralistic. It becomes absolutistic. In what sense? The idea is, in Western culture, um, that there is no absolute truth, except that one, of course. So that there's an internal contradiction here. There's no absolute truth, except that there is no absolute truth. That sort of slips through somehow. But there is no absolute truth, so anybody who proposes an absolute truth is an enemy and needs to be silenced. So everybody's allowed to say whatever they want unless they say that there is something that is absolutely true. And people are perfectly willing, perfectly willing to allow that Christianity is true for Christians. And you will get this. When you talk with people, they will say, well, that's true for you. That's true for you. But I have my truth. Um, But when we begin to talk about something that is universally true, that becomes very offensive in our day. But I want you to understand something. Because it's easy for us to lose our nerve. Uh, Those of us who are Christians, it's easy for us to lose our nerve in this sort of a situation in which we are uh, singled out as as kind of the the enemy of of, of peace and, and liberty because we believe in an absolute truth. The situation into which the Gospel came originally was a pluralistic Situation. There were many gods and many religions and everything was okay as long as you sort of lived and let others live. But then Christians came into this, this pluralistic situation and they began to teach that Jesus is the true God who gave Himself for our sins and God raised Him from the dead. And that was just as offensive then as it was now. And so we're not in a unique situation, although it may feel like one for us in the West, because we used to have some support from the culture for our beliefs, but uh, largely no longer. Now, the last thing Paul says here is a little curious. It's, It's hard to know whether it goes with this section or whether it goes with what follows. And we don't know exactly of what people were accusing him, But he is defending himself here of some sort of an accusation in verse 10. He says, For am I now, he asks two rhetorical questions, he says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's he's entering in some he's defending himself in some way, but we don't know exactly what they were accusing him of. But it looks like they were accusing him of being a man pleaser, of making things up that people wanted to hear. And he says, "No, no, 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 no. On the contrary, I didn't make this up. And in fact, this is not what people want to hear. Oftentimes, and if we look at Paul's life, uh, this didn't get him uh, to advancement in society." It didn't get him prosperity. It didn't get him peace. It got him beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and imprisonments and eventually death. So, But Paul wants the Galatians to understand that he is not preaching this in order to please men. Elsewhere, he, he tells us that he persuades humans, not God, in 2 Corinthians 5.11. And then also in 1 Thessalonians 2.4-6, he tells us that he pleases God, not humans. 
So his desire is to persuade humans, not God, there's nothing to persuade God about, and he, his desire is to please God, not to please humans. And he, he clarifies that uh, in various letters. But the last line is very clear. He said, if I were still trying to please man, so it looks like he used to live that way, he used to be trying to, to get ahead in human society. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's saying these two things are opposites. We can either be uh, those who are uh, set about pleasing God, or we can be those who are set about pleasing others. Now, one reason that people reject this absolute claim that Christianity makes, and I think we can be sympathetic to this uh, this sort of feeling when they hear the gospel message. One of the reasons I think people reject this this absolute claim of Christianity is because it sounds arrogant. Uh, people will say to us, you Christians think you have it all figured out. You Christians think you have the corner on truth. You think you are better than others. But that's really missing the point, isn't it? Because the point is not what we Christians think. The point has to do with what does the gospel claim. And let's go once again to what the gospel claims. The gospel claims that there is one man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is God in human form. And that that one man gave himself as a substitute for the sins of others. And that God, the one God, raised that human who was crucified from the dead permanently. Now, regardless of what you believe, I think you will admit that that is not something that can be true for some and not for others. You know, that that sort of a claim is either completely false and needs to be rejected and stamped out with vehemence, or it is absolutely true. Why? Not because of who we Christians are. That has really nothing to do with it. Because of the nature of the claims of the Gospel. And these sort of claims need to be either rejected completely or accepted with faith. They can't be true for some and not true for others. Now, in this first section, we haven't gone very far. I think we'll find more appealing reasons to believe that these claims are true, absolutely true, but we actually have two good reasons in this first section to believe the Gospel is true. The first one is this, and it is perhaps so obvious that we might miss it, and that is that the gospel really is good news. And that is in distinction from the messages of really all the other faith systems out there. You will find in other faith systems good advice telling you what to do. But the gospel is unique. The gospel is distinct because it is good news. It doesn't come telling you in the first place what to do. It comes telling you what God did on your behalf. And so it is, it is uniquely good news. And the fact that it is uniquely good news makes it stand out and is a, a compelling reason to believe it. But there's another reason that's in this text, and that is those who believe the gospel are delivered. Those who believe the gospel are delivered. This is something that you can see 
and you can experience for yourself. And others can see it as well. Those who believe the gospel are delivered from this present evil age. Their lives change in a significant way. And that, that is also a compelling reason to believe the gospel. It was told to me as a true story. I have not been able to verify it, so I do not present it as something that actually happened. But uh, I present it as something of a thought experiment. And I'd like to see if this actually happened. But if not, uh, if I am ever in this sort of situation, I may pull it out. But the situation was this, as it was presented to me, that an atheist wanted to debate a Christian. And you will see these things on YouTube quite frequently and on television and so on, these debates between Christians and atheists. And some of those are enlightening and some of those are very challenging to us. Uh, some of those are very encouraging. But, but it was one of those scenarios uh, in this, uh, as it was told to me. And the Christian said, sure, I'll be happy to do that. I'll be happy to debate you. But on one condition, that we compose the audience this way. You go out and you invite everybody that you can find who has been released from drug addiction by becoming an atheist and who has had their marriage rescued by becoming an atheist and who has been delivered from a life of materialism and greed by becoming an atheist and who has, who has been rescued from a self-centered, selfish life by becoming an atheist who has been rescued from lying and cheating and stealing by becoming an atheist. You invite all of those you can find. And I'll invite all of those that I can find who can say, I was changed. I was transformed because I believe this message about God becoming a human and giving His life for the sins of others, sinful people like me, and raising Him from the dead. My life has been utterly transformed. Now, as I say, I don't know if that actually happened. But I think we know what might happen if somebody composed an audience that way. Which bears out what Paul says here. And why he is so adamant about there being only one gospel. Because there is only one God who became a man. There is only one Savior who gave His life for the sins of others. And that Savior is the only one who has been raised from the dead permanently. There is only one good news. And that good news delivers and transforms all who will believe it. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that Jesus has come that Jesus has died and that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that He will come again and consummate the age to come. And I pray for all of us here sitting and those who might hear this by some other means that You would place before us Jesus Christ come in the flesh, crucified and raised from the dead and that You would give us faith to believe in Him. And that through believing that you would rescue us from this present evil age, that we might live according to your will that is expressed so clearly in your word.
And we pray, O God, for ourselves. We don't walk as those who think we figured something out. We walk as those who have been rescued, not of our own doing, delivered from our own folly, only by Your grace, the grace that's in Jesus Christ and which we find in the good news, the Gospel. And I pray for that Gospel, that it would go out from each of our lives in what we say and how we live. As people who are of the age to come, living still in this present evil age. So glorify Jesus through us, we pray in His name. Amen.